Hello, and welcome to Opika's Innovation in Care Collaboration podcast series. My name is Ken McGill. I am a solution-focused care senior scientist here at Opika. Prior to arriving at Opika, I served for almost two decades as part of a statewide children's system of care. It was during my tenure, especially at Rutgers University, the Behavioral Research Training Institute, where I learned the importance of utilizing evidence-based practices to support successful outcomes. Today's show will be on the FFPSA for Community Foster Care Providers, outlining both the opportunities as well as the challenges. And for those who aren't familiar with the FFPSA, it's the acronym for the Family First Prevention Services Act, or Family First. While this is an opportunity, this legislation is to reach out to more families and more focus in on prevention, keeping children safely with their biological families. While this is an incredible opportunity, it also means serving larger populations and utilizing modalities of service offerings to support the work, and that means including evidence-based practices. We know what works. And here at Opeka, we actually have a person-centered intelligence solutions in supporting what works for whom and looking both at the individual level, but also at the population level. And we should be utilizing the data in that way. So these series of sessions will be including uh, information around how we can best support children, youth, and emerging adults, as well as their families, part of the child welfare system, specifically connected to foster care. So this is open to anyone, anyone who serves children, youth, and families. The uh, event's focus will be on generating conversation and ideas to meet the new challenges, as well as the opportunities set forth by the Family First Act. And we're so glad you can join us because Dr. Kate Cordell, co-founder of Opeka, as well as the panelists, will provide on how we can support systems to collaborate together, facilitate implementation strategies to be both successful, but also embedding a preventative care approach. And so we're really looking at being more efficient, more accountable, and more effective which equates, in my mind, and hopefully the mind of others, real health equity. So thank you for joining us. And we are happy today to have a panel for discussion that includes uh, Ryan. And Ryan, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Good afternoon. My name is Ryan Vernetson. I'm a licensed professional counselor in Colorado, and I serve as the chief of clinical innovation and technology at a large nonprofit organization called SAFI. I'm a practicing animal assisted ther- therapist and um, also offer clinical consulting. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks so much, Ryan. And uh, we also have on the line Ken McGill. Hello, hello, everyone. My name is Ken McGill. I'm solution focused care senior scientist here at OPICA. I am a clinical fellow, licensed marriage and family therapist, served uh, the last 17 years uh, before coming over to Opeka in New Jersey's children's system of care, uh, specifically around CAN's child family team, and we will be serving this year for the uh, 2021 TCOM CAN's conference, and it's a true honor, so thank you all for taking time out of your schedule. Great, and thanks so much. Um, 
Also, I am Kate Cordell, um, co-founder of OPICA, Managing Director of Mental Health Data Alliance, also assistant professor at the University of Kentucky in the Center for Innovation and Population Health, and excited to have everyone here today to talk about the upcoming changes in our field. So just a quick background about OPICA. We're a uh, new organization that is founded around the mission to put people at the center of care and really feel like there is technology now that we can harness to make more meaning out of the information that we have and that we're collecting from people in care and that we can provide that as feedback on progress to people who are both helping uh, folks in care as well as to the folks in care themselves, those families, children, and youth. Um, and if we have a better use of information, we can better know what works for whom, which interventions are working better, which practices are making the most impact, and really um, focus our energy in ways that we can serve our children, youth, and families better. And another piece that we do is we try to cultivate collaboration. And through the work that we do, we kind of have these three areas we focus on, and that is the ability to flexibly collect information from the people we serve to build their story. So this flexible assessment collection, no matter what question you wanna ask, we wanna build people's stories because until we understand the stories, we're not able to serve those people and families well. And then also we allow collaborative care planning that is between folks within an agency or across different agencies. And so OPICA uh, uh, is, is missioned to figure out how we can better share information securely, um, accurately, and with the right releases, but when it's, when it's helpful for collaborative care planning. And then the third thing that we try to do is offer real-time outcomes monitoring so that we don't need to wait for years after someone's out of care to have a research and evaluation team figure out how care was, that we can monitor in real-time, see how we're doing with our families, um, with both the, at the person and family level, but also at the population level to see if there's particular people or families that we're serving better um, and ones where maybe we need to adjust the services and supports we offer to better meet their needs. And so those are the three kind of areas that OPICA is focused on. Is Ryan, I'll pass it over to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my quick disclaimer is that I'm, you know, I don't obviously represent the federal government or am a, a total expert on FFPSA, but I know enough to be dangerous in my in my own job and how we apply these shifts federally to our services um, as a foster care and community-based service provider. We also offer family preservation and reunification, adoption, and behavioral health. So FFPSA is this landmark and historic shift in child welfare practice that I think many of us, including you, are very excited about. It's providing federal reimbursement for mental health services, substance abuse treatment, and parenting programs for children and families who are at risk of entering foster care. It's truly a shot at taking those upstream prevention efforts so that kids never have to enter um, out-of-home care. FFPSA is a redirection of existing federal funds. So it's not necessarily an infusion of new funds. It's instead limiting the amount of 4E funding that a state can utilize for congregate care and instead redirecting that into prevention-based programming. Um, in order for states to be 
claiming uh, the federal funding through FFPSA for prevention services, there's a couple of requirements that have to be met. Well, there's actually more than a couple, but as it relates to us as community-based service providers, I think these are the highlights. Um, and so it's not an exhaustive list, but the state has to ensure that the child's a candidate for foster care or a pregnant or parenting teen so that the services are offered for prevention. Uh, there needs to be utilization of evidence-based practices that are listed on the 4E Clearinghouse, which is separate from existing clearinghouses like the California Clearinghouse we may be familiar with. The provision of services needs to fall under the categories of mental health, substance abuse treatment, or prevention programs. And truly, the utilization of 4E money should be the payer of last resort. So we're still being asked to utilize funding such as Medicaid for appropriate services whenever possible. Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate your disclaimer. Um, I think we're all trying to figure this out. And I loved how you set the stage, uh, Ryan. Thank you. And we're figuring this out during one of the most challenging times that we've ever experienced on this planet. So when we look at this particular slide and recognize there are over, almost a half a million children and youth that are in foster care. So we first, all of us here on the panel and here at Apica, we wanna thank you for your service because the work itself was challenging enough. Factoring in a, a worldwide pandemic was started at the end of 2019 throughout the entire year of 2020 and now halfway through this particular year um, is a challenge. So like Ryan said, it's, it's, it's an opportunity, I think, for us um, when we apply um, the Family First Act to the work that we, we know we, we are doing and what we do well. And to the left of the, of the screen, you can see where uh, children, youth, and families information is often siloed. It doesn't follow them within care. So the one thing I remember from, from my tenure uh, in New Jersey's Children's System of Care, 17 out of the 20 years, is that families, children, youth have to retell their stories over and over. So they're really retelling their trauma. And what could often happen is re-traumatizing throughout this process. So it actually, we wanna shift and use technology within our care circles to best care for each and every child, youth, and family. So the next slide actually points out in a way that we wanna capture the whole child and system of care has all the different components to it. And each of us on this call, whichever system partner we're part of would agree that um, the, the goal is to do no harm. That's the basic tenet of our work. Well, we do no harm, we do no, we do, do no trauma, and trauma is often um, something that we need to work on, not just focusing in on their behavioral, emotional needs. So when we look at health and wellness or the whole person, that's where I think Family First is gonna do a lot more um, supporting and working on effective outcomes, applying the uh, evidence-based practices that we'll talk about today. So just a, just a different way of doing business. Thanks, Ken. Uh, yeah, so um, as I mentioned, OPICA's one of our missions is to um, allow for that whole person care and collaborative care across the system of care. And so we have worked hard to create a very systematic way to combine information that is related to family, uh, child and youth outcomes from 
any electronic record across the system of care so that we can look in one place and get more of a whole person view. Um, and so that is, or that is kind of one of the ways I think we're trying to help tackle some of the goals of the FFPSA. So uh, we have a number of questions that we want to ask our panel, and uh, we provided these questions to them ahead of time, and they may or may not have provided a couple slides to go with those questions. So you'll see if there were slides related to that. But the first question is for Ryan, and Ryan um, being part of a community-based foster care and um, children's mental health organization um, provider. Uh, how or how will the FFPSA requirements prevention plans impact community-based organizations and how does this intersect with telehealth now that we're in a COVID pandemic world? It's a, it's a great question and it's certainly something that we're talking about um, probably every day at this point. So, as you know, starting with foster care, foster care in and of itself is not a prevention service. So while foster care providers may not be immediately impacted by FFPSA, I think the act inherently indicates a major shift in child welfare practice, which I think we all agree is a shift in the right direction. So what it means for us is that there's more effort and resource being allocated to prevention activities to hopefully allow children to stay safely in their biological or in a relative's home, as opposed to being placed in foster care. So for those of us providing prevention services, which many of us probably on the line are doing, it means that we're considering a number of different things that perhaps we weren't a few years ago. So the first is what evidence-based practices are listed on our state's prevention plans submitted to the feds. So SAFI, for example, we have services in seven different states, um, which means that we're looking at seven different prevention plans well, currently five because two of our states don't have them yet. Um, but we're looking at those plans, understanding what the what the state is saying. These are the services we're going to use or the practices that we're going to use. And then we're comparing those to our model of care, the services in the community, the services for the communities um, that we're engaged with. And we're making those clinical determinations. Um, our next question is, how are those EVPs listed fitting within the services or the goals of our clinical programs? Um, our goal is not to say, oh, this is on the state plan, so we're just going to start up a new program accordingly. It's really how do we weave this in to someone's care journey at SAFI. The third consideration, which is where I'm currently spending most of my time, um, is what additional assessments, infrastructure, and processes are required to integrate the EVP into practice. Um, we have learned, I have learned the hard way that just adding a layer in EVP on top of an existing clinical practice can cause a lot of unnecessary burden for clinicians, for supervisors, but most importantly for families, because at times it can feel like that disjointed, a disjointed service, which is obviously not our goal. And then the final thing we're thinking about a lot um, is about managing change. So how can we manage that change effectively so that our outcomes are strengthened by the use of evidence-based practices and the shift in child welfare practice, but we're not overburdening staff, families, supervisors with increases in paperwork, a lot of duplicative assessments or assessments that are asking the same questions, just on a different piece of paper, data collection or duplicative tasks. 
So I think that in of itself is inherently complex, right? Um, I think a lot of us kind of feel like we're just taking it one step at a time, doing the best that we can. And then of course we all just weathered uh, the pandemic, which shifted um, our service delivery methods for a lot of folks and a lot of programs. So I think the intersection of COVID and vetting or selecting these evidence-based practices has presented unique challenges, but also opportunities for creativity and collaboration. So, you know, one of the conversations we have with evidence-based practices that we're vetting or considering for services in one of our states or in one of our programs is, you know, can we leverage telehealth? Um, Can we use this model? Um, You know, can we do video conferencing? Can we do phone check-ins? You know, how can we work creatively to not in any way break from the fidelity of the model, but also ensure that our services are accessible, available, um, and and compatible with the needs of families who just, you know, probably did a year potentially of telehealth services. So it's it's a unique challenge, but um, I think a a lot of folks are up to the task, Um, but it does create a lot, it it forces a lot of intentionality. Thanks, Ryan. About... About how many new evidence-based practices is SAFI considering? We're considering, our list currently is eight, but it's it's not eight practices for each program. It's kind of a suite of eight that we might um, consider based on the needs of a particular program in a particular community. Um, Our goal is to only layer where it makes clinical sense and is not overburdening to staff, supervisors, or families. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, And if anyone has any questions as you go, feel free to put them in the chat or um, to put them in the Q&A section and we can circle back around to additional questions. The next question, though, is for Ken, Ken McGill. Um, So you talk about solution-focused care planning um, and advocate for that. Can you describe what that means to you, especially in support of children, youth, families in foster care? Absolutely. And I have to say, following Ryan is a pleasure. I want to say thank you, Ryan, and to all your staff, too, because throughout the country and all the things you're, you're, um, you're doing to be as innovative, especially around telehealth. Having done the therapy in, in person and then shifting over is not an easy task. But I love your point about not adding one more layer because it just makes everything much more complex. It actually disconnects a lot of the service delivery. So what solution-focused care planning does, it's not another layer. It's actually a, a framework to follow. So uh, think of solution-focused uh, care not focusing just on problem solving. It's more built upon uh, solution building. And the slide that just was uh, shown to us now is a capture of trauma-informed therapy. Because when you think about the concept of surface observation, just looking at the behaviors, you're gonna probably ask, what's wrong with that person? The shift in understanding the larger background beyond what we see is really the essence of trauma-informed where we come up with, what has happened to you? What are some of the things that you experienced? So a child, for example, who's in residential or youth in foster care, there's a grief and loss attached to that. So I think really the most trauma-informed is, is the best way. And keeping in mind that if we're looking for solutions, the problem or challenging behavior doesn't happen all the time. So that's a, a starting point. And another it connects to a, a mantra attached to this particular uh, approach is that if you can name it, you could obtain it. 
So when you think about solutions, we're going to work towards that. And that's the, the key part of this. And the um, next slide, you have to admire that uh, Abraham Maslow, who developed this particular uh, approach to uh, human motivation back in uh, 78 years ago, uh, and, and came up with a paper that was published uh, in the Psychological Review. Love this. And seeing how, if we're looking at the primary needs or foundational needs of the pyramid, fits with trauma-informed care. Let me take it a step further. The next slide, I've overlapped the, um, the, the protective uh, factors uh, model just over that. And I think that's a real important piece. So when you look at the bottom portion around physiological needs, food, shelter, safety is up there. And with regards to love and belonging and self-esteem, someone's self-actualization or being the best person that they can be is the essence of any of the evidence-based programs that are going to be adopted um, throughout the uh, uh, Family First Act or things they're already doing. So looking beyond just problem focus. And a great place to stop um, and to look for some resources, again, not adding layers, but a mindset, is the uh, Center for the Study of Social Policy. See the website you can click on right there on the, on the screen. But I've overlaid their building key protective factors um, over Maslow's uh, pyramid. I don't think he would mind that much. But it fits so perfectly because on the bottom of the pyramid is to put into place concrete supports in time of need. If someone needs access to food, to shelter, great. We want to get those needs met. But also important is knowledge transfer. So the one rung up is knowledge about parenting, uh, knowledge about uh, child-adolescent development, also for the caregiver, but, but it's just as important for the adolescent that we're serving, teaching them about the processes of development. Social-emotional competence or social-emotional learning is a really key factor in building skills. So when you look at all the evidence-based practices you choose, you'll see that teaching skills about social-emotional uh, awareness is going to be built into many of them. And then the last two parts of the pyramid, social connections are not just making friends. Very, very good to have, but it's also social connections to someone's community. So they're places of worship, uh, being involved in a civic uh, manner. Uh, that's true equity uh, from my uh, vantage point. And then the last or top part, equating with self-actualization, is parental or caregiver resilience and youth resilience or child youth. That's where it's saying that they're not a sum of their trauma. They are this amazing individual and in spite of their traumas they experienced, they're still able to be the best that they can be. So I just love the fact that we can keep Maslow in the, uh, at the mix of our discussion, especially in the healing process of this worldwide pandemic. And family first. So. Thanks, Ken. Um, and how do you think that knowing these um, protective factors mm -hmm. informs the changes or the work that we'll do with regard to the FFPSA? I, I, that's a great part of it because when we're looking for monitoring progress and outcomes, this is a great framework to make it more tangible. If we're meeting their foundational needs, also making sure they're able to, um, to function very well within a social setting, educational setting, whatever setting they're living in, 
Um, I also believe that this framework helps to engage all the life domains of that child, um, uh, their home, their school, their community. And the same could be said for their caregiver, because the only difference is going to be home, work, and community. So it sounds like um, because the FFPSA is requiring us to monitor outcomes, um, of well-being for children, youth, and other outcomes for families and caregivers, perhaps this is a good framework to think about some of the ways that we could monitor our progress in care. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and so, Ryan, coming back to you now, um, with the, and we actually have some follow-up questions from the last one as well. So I don't know if, Laura, you want to jump in before we jump to the next question and ask a follow-up question. Yeah, we had a question um, from Laura Hines about evidence-based practices, and I just want to read it because um, I think she said it well. EBP, by definition, um, they limit creativity and innovation, or they can. Where, where's the room for innovation? Um, and then, you know, add to that the need for individualized, culturally responsive services, um, and just expressing some discouragement um, based on the limited EBPs approved for funding in year one. Can you speak to that at all, Ryan, and your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, A, it's a great question, and I think it's a keen observation, and also something that transparently we're wrestling with. Um, there are absolutely moments when we're going through, a, you know, clinical program service design and really feeling like the available options on the clearinghouse are not the best or, or a direct fit for what we're hoping to accomplish. So I'll just speak from my experience. I'm not telling you it's the end all be all solution, but what we're really working to do is, you know, identify that best match and then augment that, that practice with additional services or approaches. So like one of my, you know, preferred modalities, I think as a clinician is anything sensory based. And so even if we're selecting a model like, you know, brief strategic family therapy, I'm just throwing that out there. Um, and I notice that that child really, really needs some sensory input up or down regulating in order to be present in family therapy. I'm going to augment that with, or uh, I'm going to attach that to um, the BSFT protocol. Um, the other thing that I have found, and it certainly depends on the model, is that um, you know, so far when we're speaking with um, individuals representing these different practices, they're very open to us bringing those challenges to them to say, hey, I see it's written or prescribed to be this way. Here's the unique need of my population or here's how culture is impacting this service or how we need to deliver it. And so far, I've really just found a spirit of collaboration and a willingness to, to partner um, but I think it's really difficult. And so I think the opportunity for creativity and innovation are less in the actual protocol of what we're doing and more in our approach, um, the way that we celebrate families, the way that we honor their progress or their areas for focus, how we're using their data to make meaningful use of um, or to help them quantify and see the hard uh, the difficult changes that they're making, but for the betterment of the, their family, I think that's where we can infuse infusion and creativity for good. Great. Thanks, Ryan. And um, also very related to that, with the implementation of new evidence-based practices, 
how has that changed the assessments that you use, um, as well as the outcomes that you're tracking and relating back to Ken's framework um, of protective factors? Are those, do you, are you tracking protective factors now or what kinds of assessment tools are you really looking at now? Yeah, we're actually, I mean, candidly, we're reevaluating our entire assessment, uh, our entire assessment experience. So um, as you guys know, or as we know, a lot of EBPs come with an ad additional assessments. But what was surprising to me is that some of them also come with proprietary systems um, and they are really wanting you to put data into their system. So, you know, at SAPI, our commitment is to identify mechanisms to limit the volume of additional paperwork or duplicative data entry, you know, we want clinicians spending the majority of their time serving families. We don't want it doing administrative tasks. So, you know, totally transparently, SAPI is, has entered into a pilot with OPICA. Um, so far, it's an amazing partnership. We're really excited about the work that we think we can do together. Uh, we intend to use OPICA as our assessment engine, which is integrated via an API with our electronic healthcare records. So it's, it's no change for our clinicians, but our goal is to accomplish a couple of things. And I think this is just illuminated by FFPSA and EBPs. These have been longstanding problems. Um, you know, the first is that a true integration and connection between assessments, care planning, and evidence-based practices. So I really think, and to no fault of anyone's, it's not a lack of interest, but it's often a lack of time and resource. Um, we have kind of the assessment that your agency says you need to do. You have these external assessments, maybe you have one for an EVP, maybe you have one that a funder requires. Um, and then you have a care plan. And I think it's a really disjointed experience, which doesn't feel good for, it doesn't feel good for clinicians. And I can't imagine it feels that good for families or children either. So, you know, one thing we're really trying to do is, is relink that golden thread of we have all of the assessments in one system. And from that, we're understanding or we're aggregating insights related to that that family and or that child and all of the different voices that contributed to assessing them that comes with a story map which i can't describe eloquently but kate certainly can um, and from that story map we're care planning so for us it's an, a beautiful opportunity to enhance care make really meaningful um, use of data and hopefully start transforming um, outcomes in a way that we've not been able to before just because of, you know, the very real and tangible burdens of having siloed assessment systems. Um, you know, the other thing that that we're really excited about it, with our use of OPICA is the ability to store things in one place. Um, so, so this is a real world example. You can go to that slide, Kate. This is a real world, world example of some work um, I recently did with one of our teams at SAFI, and um, they're using, based on their program, they're using a couple of different EVPs. And, you know, the, the primary concern for this team was our staff are super overwhelmed and we're having turnover. And, we, and, and the common reason is like administrative load, like it's too much paperwork. So we just took a two-hour session and we process mapped the experience of getting their case from referral to starting services. So referral to consent. And anywhere you see a different color box, that indicates a different system was being used. So a state system, our EHR, 
a um, Excel sheet, a OneNote, a Word document. And I know that we're not alone in this, you know, this experience of doing your best to put data together in a way that doesn't overwhelm any one person, but really just looks like kind of a mess once we put it all there. And then you think like, oh, of course you're overwhelmed. Of course you don't feel successful in your job. There's no way that anyone could operate um, well with conditions like that. So, you know, that's one of the things we're really excited about. That's one of the, the pain points I think we've all had in the last decade or even longer that FFPSA is shining a light on and allowing us to really pay attention to and fix through forcing some use of EVPs. Um, and then I think most importantly to me is this idea of enhanced case conceptualization through story maps. So, so that conversation with families um, and when we're asking them to fill out these assessments, which I think historically have been scored and it's well-meaning, but they end up in a, a dusty file somewhere. Um, when we have that story map, we can really have conversations with families and their children focused on, here's what you're doing so well, you know, and um, here's what we can work on together. And then here are the protective factors we're going to just continue to enhance so that your family has a buffer when, when our work together is done. And so that's what we're working on. It's, it's a ton of work. It's really exciting. And I know that other agencies are also um, raising their hand to be, to, to be part of that solution. And we certainly welcome that partnership. Thank you, Ryan. Um, I will... Uh move on to thank you so much that is so I, I just love the fact that you talk about and I, I jumped ahead to the story map so folks could see what a story map actually looked like um but i love that you did this process map i just think that if you could really look at how staff engage with the work and the paperwork and the administrative burdens and come up with a map like this you could um, just commiserate with staff, if nothing else, about how difficult it is to be successful with all these new requirements on them and then look for ways to be more efficient. So I think that, I think everyone should do this <laughs> process mapping. Thank you. Um, okay, so um, moving to uh, Ken's question here, um, talking about a specific assessment, the CANS, because Ken, you have significant expertise in the child adolescent needs and strength, which is a very popular assessment in both uh, children's mental health and child welfare, and now maybe schools as well. Um, but I know you were the lead CANS and wraparound um, trainer for New Jersey Children's System of Care for 12 years. How can organizations use something like the CANS for outcomes monitoring and make it more really make it more about the work and not the burden of the administrative paperwork and processes and systems and everything Ryan just talked about. I, I agree that after Ryan speaks, it really does bring everything together because I thought of that process map and how it's so connected to the work um, embedded into wraparound. If you keep it about the process rather than the steps or the things that you have to accomplish, the tasks, that's the success. Um, and it really builds very well with the CANS tool because the CANS is not paperwork, it's meaningful conversation. So I absolutely think everyone should get a copy. I think they will get a copy of the, the process map. With the CANS, how I described it and continue to describe it about the work, I'll actually give an example because I'm looking at the time a little bit and it just popped in my head. Um, when I was a clinical director for uh, a care management organization, we had a 13-year-old uh, young boy who was referred to us um, 
uh, a court order. So we're a voluntary program. So our reframe was voluntold to be with the care management organization. So we had our meeting and the primary focus or need was school attendance or focused on truancy. So at the table was the 13 year old and all these adults. And our goal was to get this young person back um, to school. I don't know if anyone on the call uses life domain cards or cans cards. So if you are interested, just shoot me an email um, and be more than happy to pass along. Um, but the, the, uh, we're having a conversation and this young boy grabs the safety card, big red letters, safety. The uh, caregiver stopped and said, why would you grab that card? And I'll remember it like it, it was just yesterday. This young person answered very succinctly. No one asked me why I wasn't going to school. Turns out that while he was at school, he was being forced to join a gang and you just can't say no to joining a gang. So who's being assaulted at school? So his thinking was, if I stay home, it'll keep me safe, but also prevent my family from being endangered. So the big focus shouldn't be on just the what's going on, because that's where we stayed. And our goal was to get this young man back to the place where he's being assaulted. That's not trauma informed. That's not positive outcome. That is just not what we should be doing. And the slide that you see before you is the, um, the, the a quick snapshot of the CANS trauma items. And when we find out what's going on, let's come up with some theories and questions around and more information about the why, why things are occurring. Because that'll lead towards the how we're gonna do things in a more meaningful, trauma-informed and connect directly back to the evidence-based practices uh, that many of you will choose to support the Family First Act. So I think this actually gives you a quick snapshot and the story map, I love it because again, Brian, exactly how you described it, it was there are certain things that we're gonna target. We cannot take away or take back uh, someone experiencing trauma. We wish we could, but we can't. But it's certainly very important to understand uh, things we cannot change, keep an eye on and watch things, items that are very specific, and then focus more in on the targeted action items. The need to focus in on, these are the care plans. These are the actual work towards meeting those needs. But we also, if we use the cans, it's beyond just the needs, it is the strengths as well. If those individuals already have those strengths, incorporate them in care planning. If there needs to be a strengths built, will actually do that and that will fit with the protective factors and with many of the um, uh, evidence-based practices that you uh, you already mentioned, whether it be cognitive behavioral therapy, et cetera. Um, and I, I just, I, I think that's a great way to tie everything in. So I, I think I got the easier questions and I really appreciate going after Ryan. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, Ken. And I just wanted oh, to follow pleasure. up um, with the, the our, our goal at APICA with what Ryan said and with what Ken was talking about is really to reduce the burden um, and increase the ability to collect information and know more about our families and be able to ask them the questions we need to ask them and store that information in meaningful ways. And so one of the things that we've implemented is the ability to complete assessments on your phone or by text um, or by email on your computer so that you can capture information about uh, the cans as an example on your screen. So here's 
for example, somebody sitting uh, with their phone and being able to answer the optimism question on the cans um, and see the ratings and see the scores and really follow along, whether, the, whether that is something that they are keeping and submitting as their voice on that particular assessment, or they're just following along in a discussion, having in front of them uh, what it is that we're talking about in terms of what exactly is optimism when we say optimism and we're talking about how optimistic is um, the person in care, what is it, what does that really mean? Um, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, if we can make assessments easier to collect um, and we're just shooting off the uh, questionnaire on well-being or whatnot, then we can collect that more often and really begin to monitor if safety and well-being are increasing and decreasing month to month, even week to week, because it becomes so much less of a burden. Um, we can ask those questions more often, automate the ability to ask those questions and monitor in real time that uh, well-being and safety are either being maintained or hopefully improving. Um, and so here you see even fidelity measures can be sent off to families and says, does your child and family team have a written prevention plan? Yes or no. And so now you're capturing fidelity with regard to that, um, that program. And so not wanting to add any more, any more burden, trying to reduce burden, those can all be automated so that you can collect the information and move it into the, um, the care plan. And I just wanted to take a moment to show you, because we're talking so much about it, what, uh, how that story map really works in pieces. So I'm here in um, pieces, and this is the person-centered intelligence solution. And this is one of the tools that Opika has built to really try to reduce burden and unify information that Ryan talked about, um, that we've integrated with their electronic health record so that when they sign into their electronic health record and they wanna launch a new assessment, um, they can calibrate that assessment here no matter what it is. You can see in this example, Malcolm has all different kinds of assessments. He has a CANS, he has a CHAPS, which is a Casey Family um, Availability Timescale for his foster caregivers. He has school measures, he has um, a risk assessment. And if I select any one of these um, assessments, you can see there's several assessments and reassessments over time, and I can quickly track the progress that he's making on his needs. Went from 22 to eight to seven at time one, time two, and time three. And if I expand um, a focused view, I can look in at just the areas on the child and adolescent needs and strength where we've identified they are a need for focus, a strength present, or a strength uh, a need in the background, or a strength to build. And this focused view hides anything from the cans, if I expand all, that wasn't of an area of, of, of need that we need to pay attention to. So in this particular um, cans, it's either collected in the electronic health record as you already have it and just rendered here for you to view it in an easier way and look at change over time, um, or it can be collected here. So it doesn't have to be collected here. We never, never wanna add duplicate entry. We only want to reduce duplicate entry. So if there's a way that's being collected already, it just renders here in um, a, an easier way to, to track and see change over time. But if you didn't have a system that was able to um, capture a, a new type of assessment you wanted, um, they're easily calibrated here. Any type of assessment, um, even one you make up yourself, um, and I'll just reassess here by copying the previous 
And so you can uh, then just update the assessment here or you can email it out. So, and if I expand, every question has embedded within it the entire um, kind of dictionary around what that question is and how to answer it and uh, whether or not you want to uh, mark that as confidential. And so that is all, you know, one of the things that we try to help um, create a, a more unified uh, experience for staff. And let me just cancel out or save this. But I wanted to show you how the email works as well. So um, you wouldn't necessarily email a CANS to somebody to complete because that's quite an extensive, more interview communication tool. But you might actually want if you begin tracking the World Health Organization's Wellbeing Index, which is five questions about cheerful, calm, active, feeling fresh and rested in life with interests, then I could send an a, uh, email or a text to the person in care or any of their caregivers um, and ask them to complete it with an invite to complete. An email gets sent and I've just sent it previously here so I can hop over and they receive a link either on their phone as a text or in their email and then they can just come in here as soon as they select that and um, begin to read the question um, and answer it uh, here or from the drop down um, and add any notes. Um, feeling anxious. Um, and then submit that. And then as soon as that's submitted, it actually shows up here. Let's just refresh. It actually will show up here um, immediately. So you have real-time monitoring of the person in care's well-being. Um, and so you can see that's here now. And if I expand that out, we even have that note of feeling anxious here feeling anxious. So you're, you're capturing in real time how people are feeling in care, um, whether that be about fidelity or about their voice being heard or about their well-being indicators um, by just emailing that to them and then simply completing it or scheduling that to go out to people on a regular basis so that they can let you know how they're doing in care so that you can adjust care if needed. Um, and then all of these questionnaires automatically get converted into story maps. And so if I look at uh, Malcolm's story map here, what you can see is this is a child and adolescent needs and strengths cans converted into that story map that Ken showed, where anything that's a trauma item or a past behavior, things we cannot change, get put over on the left. And anything that's a background need, meaning we're not focused on it, but we wanna keep our eye on the rising level of anxiety, but not to the point where we're intervening yet. Um, and then the need for focus is in the middle. So, and these are adjustable in order so that you can begin to prioritize your care planning, um, but keeping an eye on uh, the strengths as well, those protective factors that both Ken and Ryan talked about being so important so that the family can continue on their journey of recovery and resilience after care. So we're really trying to take that information that was, you know, a piece of paper that gets filed, you know, how it used to be back in the day to something that's so much more meaningful to care planning. Um, and then we go one step further even, let me save the priority. We do have a narrative down here and if I save it, 
it'll update the order. And we do go one step further where every single assessment, even that well-being one that you just saw, um, gets converted into a family report that you could potentially share with that family. And so automatically um, after the assessment's completed, it shows you the prior um, and the current rating with these little icons that are family friendly um, and a key of goals reached and what's still in progress, as well as any notes in terms of um, whatever notes were entered in comments, or maybe this is, as uh, Ryan mentioned, the brief strategic family therapy is being used um, in this case. And so there may be some instructions related to that. And this report could be something that um, is helpful to provide to a family. Uh, you can download that report and share it um, or just show to the family while in care about how they're, they're making their progress because you know there's, there's a lot of research to suggest that having goals and knowing progress toward that goals uh, toward those goals really helps um, improve an, someone's ability to move along that recovery and resilience trajectory. Um, and of course, we have the strengths-focused report as well that you could use independently, looking at just those areas of strength um, and the progress made there, as well as any um, information around that as well. Um, so this is what we're doing in terms of trying to make data and information more meaningful, easier to collect, reduce duplication, reduce cross-system, dual entry um, at the person level. But the other thing is that because of this, we can also look at it at the staff level and begin to provide um, supervising and coaching. So here at the main dashboard, this is a supervisor view, looking at how many people we're helping, how many different areas of need, what are the top areas of need. Uh, sleep is the top area of need for all the people that I'm serving or the child, children and youth that I'm serving. Um, and if I want to look at a particular staff, which we're calling a helper here, um, I can drill in to see how's Elizabeth doing with her five folks she's working with, um, how is she making progress in each of the areas that have been identified as areas of focus for um, her population. And as her supervisor, I'm looking at her view and I can give her that coaching to say, you know, I see that three, um, three kids and families are still not engaging in community life or two of three. Um, what are you, you know, what are your ideas there for uh, providing some more uh, coaching for the family around engaging in community life so that they can have that additional support after they leave care so they're not dependent on us in care, that they make those social uh, important connections in the community. So this is kind of the supervisor dashboard uh, to allow that supervision and coaching to occur. And then at the insights, we have that agency level and even state level dashboard that where you can really drill into what are the top areas across an entire state or an agency how um, how are we doing in those areas in terms of adjustment to trauma being the top area of need that we see followed by sleep and community life and then how often are we resolving those different areas in this case perhaps we need to be more trauma focused in our care and then really drilling into um, any indicated area, like if we wanted to look at neglect, as we mentioned earlier, and look at just um, children or youth that uh, are in care for reasons of neglect, we can do that. And I'll jump over, whoops, let me get rid of that guy here. And I'll jump over here because um, I've got it with a lot a larger population. So now we can see 
um, neglect uh, for 1,329 uh, people. And you can begin to drill in to see what are the top areas of um, uh, resolution when kids with neglect um, improve on their well-being. What is it? Where is it we're making that adjustment? And it is in their adjustment to trauma and their family functioning or in building strengths are the top areas that we're helping uh, with these kids when they're meeting success in the program uh, in that they're uh, being placed with families as the goal of our program. So you can really drill into um, the, the statewide, the agency-wide view um, as well. And I'm gonna jump back so to the, the questions now. So that was just like a, a brief overview of some of the work that we're doing here at Opeka to try to um, create more of a uh, ability to adapt to the changes of the FFPSA, new assessments, new evidence-based practices, new outcomes that need to be monitored. Um, and again, meeting our mission of real-time monitoring, you know, easing the burden of information collection, making information more meaningful. And the other thing is we unify this information across different agencies when the appropriate memorandums of understanding are made so that you can share information right down to a particular question with a co-served family that's served by maybe uh, behavior health and child welfare at the same time um, and probably in possibly even um, probation or another agency. And so we allow that sharing to occur very, very securely um, and very controlled that only the information that needs to be shared will be shared across those different um, agencies. So that's another area that we're focusing on. But coming back to you, Ryan, the, these are a lot of changes that we're talking about today with evidence-based practices, new types of assessments, new types of outcomes monitoring. And as much as we at OPICA are trying to do our part in reducing the burden, you know, there are still just a, a just overwhelming number of changes for staff in the last couple of years. So what is it that we can do in addition to um, our, the process mapping, which I love that you suggested, and like considering how to reduce their burden and workload? What else can we do to address workforce um, uh, burnout uh, so they're not feeling overwhelmed as the FFPSA rolls out? That's a great question. And I think there's a there's a therapeutic parallel. So just like with with kids or families, when we want to stop a particular behavior, we have to give them an alternative, right? An alternative behavior to utilize. I think it's the kind, it's kind of the same for our staff and, and our change management. So if we're going to um, train you in an evidence-based practice and ask that you start reconceptualizing your work um, or integrating that EBP into your work, I think we also, that's a huge cognitive load. We need to also be removing things from you. And so that's where, I mean, I've seen it before, obviously, since we're in a pilot, but that's where I get so excited about seeing resources like the family report. Because that, you know, coming to a, a session to do collaborative care planning, that's a massive cognitive task, right? To integrate, here's what my assessment said, here's what my biopsychosocial said, here's what the, the caseworker said. To have that in one place, I mean, I, I think we're, we're saving hours upon hours for clinicians, but we're still getting them the same data and probably in a better way. So one of the things we're really noticing or I'm noticing is that 
the change tolerance of our workforce right now is really limited. And, and I know that for myself, I think coming out of the pandemic, whereas I could adjust more swiftly to change or I could tolerate ambiguity, it's much less so now because, you know, we've all been doing that for over a year. And so I think one of the opportunities are, are A, fantastic change management practices. And the second is, is the utilization of pulse surveys. Um, so, you know, my secret, my superpower is Google. Um, and so a lot of these questions come from um, the internet that I just slightly adapted. But, you know, just something like a pulse survey is meant to be a very short uh, survey that's administered to employees or a particular group, perhaps at a more frequent interval than your annual employee satisfaction survey. And so utilizing, I mean, I, I intend to utilize um, pieces or OPICA um, to do our pulse surveys related to EHR changes. Um, just asking about how are we communicating? Do you trust that we support your efforts? Um, I've been effectively, you know, we've been effectively, man we've effectively managed, sorry, the recent changes. You know, some people may say, no, not at all. We've not, you know, I feel my caseload is the same, but it feels so much more intense or I'm doing double work. Um, I'm staying focused on the things that make a difference. If someone says no, I'd be curious about, do you feel like there's more paperwork that you're doing? Do you feel like you're trying to get certain outcomes because that's what you were told to do, but you've lost your therapeutic process? And then question five is one of my favorites. Is it, my team is able to do more. I think this is one of the ways that we can assess fatigue. So if we have a whole team saying, no, we're not able to do more, I think that that would indicate that we need to zoom in with that team and really understand where are those pain points? How can we eliminate friction? And how can we reinfuse some energy and some in, you know do some inputs for this team that allow them to get back to a place of stability and wellness? Thank you, Ryan. And um, one thing I'll say about pieces is unlike other uh, pieces can be used to survey and assess uh, families, children, families, caregivers, as well as helpers. And the difference about using pieces to assess and reassess helpers versus using other traditional human resource tools is that it's not anonymous. You actually know who and what team is having the burden. Um, and so it, it's helpful in that way. And then the reassessment of that team after you do an intervention to remove the burden from those staff or those teams team members, you can reassess and see if there were changes. So again, because of the non-anonymous um, nature that PIECES does the assessments or the pulse surveys in, as well as looking at that change over time, you can begin to see if the interventions that you're doing and your staff are actually working to reduce their, um, increase their well-being and reduce their feelings of overwhelm, being overwhelmed. Can I jump in real quick, Kate and Ryan, because we had a comment that's kind of related to this, talking about um, a lot of focus is on recruiting new foster families and finding ways to support our current foster families and empower them to do well what they want to do. Can you speak to how this could help or, Ryan, some of your experience helping foster parents in that way? Um, yeah, that is, I think I really relate to that challenge of, you know, the, the recruitment versus the retention. And how do we ask experienced foster parents to do even more? Uh, that's hard. And, you know, you want to push them without breaking them, of course, because they are, they are treatment agents for us when it's the right foster parent. Um, you know, in my, in my work with foster parents, as I'm sure you can relate, I think that 
a lot of folks sign up to be foster parents because they want to make the difference in the life of a child and in a family. And so they, what that means to me is that they want to be successful. They, they want to know that those late nights, those escalations, those de-escalations, those Saturdays spent at training are mattering. And so while I don't, you know, I don't know that there's a direct, if you do this and then this will happen, but, you know, I think one of the ways we would choose to harness this state, these data is by partnering with our foster parents and showing them changes over time as that child progresses in their home and really allowing a conversation as well as a celebration of how their specific efforts as therapeutic parents are facilitating this change and this healing. I think the other thing is that foster parents want their voice to be heard. They don't want to just be at home. They want to come to the table. They are the they are an expert on their child as well as their biological or that child's natural family whenever it's safe. And so ensuring that we are asking for their voice as part of the assessment process, I think is another way that we can really focus on retention. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Innovation and Care Collaboration Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or Google, and join us each week as we invite in thought leaders in health and human services to discuss the latest trends in healthcare and technology.